Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, Todd Davidson, and on episode six of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have part two with Jack Lynch. In part one, myself and Jack fresh off the long-term athletic development conference in Gloucester, spoke about his experiences coaching youth athletes, why we are perhaps too inclined as coaches to treat children as athletes or adults when perhaps they aren't ready for this structure. We also discussed how to structure training based in line with cognitive maturity and how much of this training should be, for example, gameplay versus formalized training with program cards. In part two, we get to dive into a little bit more specific stuff and we talk about Jack's role with Leander Swim Club, the idea of sports specificity, if such a term is even appropriate, and how he helps build young swimmers from the foundational level to perhaps some more specific stuff. Sports specificity specificity is one of my favorite discussion topics with coaches as a lot of coaches have different views on what it actually means and what it looks like to them, as well as busting some common myths as to what sports specificity might be in other people's book. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Okay, so we've spoken about your work with youth athletes and as you said, quite rightly, remembering that athletes are children before they're anything and maybe the term athletes is perhaps one to stroke the ego. But we are going to dive into, dare I use the word, swimming-specific stuff. So for me, sports specificity is one of the most bastardized or misused terms in strength and conditioning. So for swim coaches who perhaps think, well, my sport's different, you're horizontal, you're in water, I need a specific approach. My first question to you is, how do you deal with those types of conversations? Sure. So I think, um, I think swimming is getting better. Um, it was definitely renowned for thinking it's incredibly different. Uh, although I think the, what's happening at the top of swimming now with British swimming and the investment they're putting into strength and conditioning and sports science, sports medicine is making a, a difference in terms of coaches' views of uh, what their athletes need and the demands of their sport. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm having a, a conversation with a swimming coach or a parent and, and my, my philosophies generally lie around pyramids. So I don't know why, but pyramids generally be a nice way to explain things. So I generally explain to coaches about, um, and try and put it in their language in terms of getting them to ask, getting them to tell me about how they would approach coaching a swimmer from a novice. And I go, my philosophy generally fits in a pyramid of foundation and then kind of a development of foundation and then into performance. Um, so with S&C, I, I tend to, to stick around that foundation block for lots and lots of swimmers. Um, mostly in, in my program right now, almost um, the, no matter what age they are, we're in that foundation block. Um, because we have very few swimmers that have actually come all the way through the program. And so I, I 
talk to coaches about them having a toolbox and me saying, well, if we look at all the movements that are needed in swimming, like talk to me about how you would uh, coach a fly kick underwater. Talk to me about how you, what you want to see on a block start. And they talk to me about things like uh, hip dominant movement patterns and, and kicking velocity and, and rotational control and all this kind of stuff. And, and I start to go, okay, well, those are all separate things that are put in the toolbox of an athlete at the very kind of foundation level. Um, so with most swimmers, it's about developing the biggest toolbox possible. So when you are asking them to, you know, change their technique on their fly kick or to develop a bilateral breathing pattern or to, uh, be able to gain more velocity off the block. They have the tools and the movement skills available to them to be able to change those techniques without throwing everything out of whack. Because generally what I get with swimming coaches that go very specific in their programs is that you tend to find their athletes are not very adaptable to change. Um, so you start to change technique in an athlete. You start to change their front front crawl strike slightly for example and you change one small thing and everything else goes out of whack and you end up having to almost recoach a pattern right from the start and for me that's a clear sign that the athlete doesn't have a toolbox available to them they have a very specific pattern that they might be able to do you know reasonably well but if you give them any other challenge that is outside of that pattern then you end up dealing with all sorts of chaos and so I generally try and explain it to coaches that way. And it kind of fits quite nicely because when we're talking about specific swimmers and they go, oh, well, you know, what are you doing with this particular athlete? And I go, well, this particular athlete is still developing that toolbox. How were they when you tried to change their fly kick earlier? Oh, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. I'm like, okay, great. So we're still getting that kind of um, chaos when we try and change one thing, which suggests to me that we still need to be here. With certain athletes, we then can bring in some objective data. We can then bring in some screening data and go, okay, well, now you see they're hitting some kind of benchmarks of where we want to be in terms of developing those foundational skills. And what we can now start to do is link those skills together and develop some capacities in those skills. Um, so that's where we can get you know, very strengthy and very powery with some athletes and start really developing an engine, if you like, um, rather than just looking at neural development and pattern development. Um, and then almost at the very top of the pyramid is anything that is swimming specific. The way I present it to coaches is qualities that are important for swimming rather than swimming specific. So I look at qualities of the sport and I go, okay, so we need some pretty good uh, mobility uh, around the ankle. We need some pretty good mobility, strength and stability around uh, the overhead position. Uh, and that's both bilateral and unilateral overhead position. And often that's coupled with some form of rotation. We also have to have incredibly good lumbar pelvic control. Uh, and we have to have what I call different levels of bracing. So we need to be able to, yes, brace as hard as we can to hit a deadlift max. But we also need to be able to get that level one, level two control to be able to float effectively in the water and be able to feel the water well. Um, and this is stuff where we actually start to look at it in terms of qualities of the sport in general and qualities of what they need rather than specific qualities. 
if we're looking at high-end swimmers that do need to develop some of those performance capabilities, that is when I start to go, okay, well, let's look joint angle specific and let's look at kind of like specific positions that you're hitting in the water and specific changes we need to make. We then start to look at things like breathing and how, and the effect of breathing, how that changes the stroke and how that change, can change a movement pattern, for example. And specifically in terms of, endurance how that how that changes things um but at, at the very start we're looking at okay well this is the kind of meat of what they need um and then we need to tailor it a little bit to these qualities that might be a little bit more important for swimming um and generally when you couple it with what they're seeing as a coach and you try and translate it a little more into their language you tend to get a really good response. I think the biggest piece of advice uh, that I have been given in the past is really get to know your sport um, and really start to be able to have a conversation with not only coach but also athlete about how the sport works and how what you're doing is, is translating into the sport, whether that be on a primary, secondary, or tertiary transfer basis. Um, it's... It's trying to develop that understanding yourself and not just standing there as an ego-filled S&C coach going, well, I'm just going to make him strong uh, because that's going to transfer into the water. Here are all my research papers. It's going, well, let me come on your level and talk your language a little bit. In regards to the primary, secondary, and tertiary transfers, could you give the listeners a little bit more of understanding as to what they mean or what they are? Sure. Uh, so if we start with uh, tertiary transfer, I generally think of these things as kind of like a kind of like an engine, kind of like so we're building the car engine. I know James Baker talks about this a fair amount with his athletes, but it's one that transfers quite nicely here, and it's developing kind of that engine that will have all those tools in the toolbox that will then allow for better secondary and primary transfer. So that might be the foundation of that pyramid. That might be developing all those movement skills that we need through theme play, through that kind of development of motor capacities that will then help transfer later on. If we're talking secondary transfer, we're now talking about capacities which are going to be more utilized in swimming. So we can break the sport down a little more and go, okay, so we are going to need high levels of muscular strength. We are going to need power off a block, but with that power is going to be, you know, specifically in terms of um, power from the legs, but also we need to develop some power through the upper body and we need to develop these positions on the block. We need to look at kind of mobility demands of that sport. And so that's a kind of secondary transfer where coaches generally start to get a little bit more on board because they start to go, oh, I get that. Yeah, we need to be strong to be able to do this. We need to be able to be powerful to be able to get off the block. I like that. That transfers into my performance. Um, and then you have that primary transfer, which is generally the development of the sports skill. That could be literally, right, I'm now going to teach you a block style. That could equally be, in, in my eyes, a kind of, a, a derivative of that that is helped via s that could be like a a block start on land that is banded from the hip so they're getting some sort of resisted start but they're still in exactly the same start position that they would be um so i, I generally see it as that kind of pyramid and that's how that builds up um 
but yeah, so that's how I, I tend to, to get that conversation started with coaches. And then, you know, we talk about what type of strength they need, what type of power they need, um, what type of fitness they need, you know, what do those terms mean to them? Because when you're talking to a coach or when you're talking to any form of athlete or stakeholder or anything like that, you want to be making sure that you are talking the same language. Um, and for me, that's generally going on the scientific terminology um, and going, okay, well, do we mean maximal strength or do we mean strength endurance? And even when you go strength endurance, swimming coaches will have an idea of what they think strength endurance is. I will have an idea of what I think strength endurance is. So it's having that conversation in a non-confrontational, non-ego-based manner. And sometimes me going, okay, um, cool, let's take your definition of that. Let's go with that because I don't want to be the one going into a program dictating all this stuff and and overstepping my mark. I want I am a supporting role. I am supporting the coach. I am supporting the athlete. I am not dictating the training program. Uh, I am not the influential factor that is going to make the biggest difference in this athlete's career because I am not that. Um, and it's important we don't see ourselves like that. And I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in that, that ego of, but we're, we're the most important thing on the team and, and we're not. Absolutely. So it's trying to say what I think they need and what the coach thinks they need and try and bring them around to that, uh, bring them around to a, a ground where we're both going to agree. And it's important to know also because we have these lovely podcasts and these conversations which generally go down the line of this is how we should do things and and it's important to say that that relationship and that um understanding of what we're doing with snc takes time and it takes input and it takes more than just one conversation it may take several years in some cases it may take two days in other cases so it's very individual to the coach you're going in with, but it massively depends on your time investment to it, um, what you're bringing to the table, and also the language that you speak. Um, I still try and have CPD events for my coaches about SNC to go through the SNC program with them, to go through how I coach certain things, to take them through my world, if you like, of what we do in the gym. Because it's really important they don't just go, oh, well, this is what I think happens in the gym. And actually, that's totally different. It's important we have that constant communication. And it's not necessarily, I call it CPD, it's not necessarily an education for them because that would be belittling of them. It's going, well, let's you know, give you an insight into what we're doing and why we're doing it and actually give you the opportunity to discuss it and to have your input in that and to feel like you are leading that program. And it's not just me going, well, I'm doing SSE with them over here. You can do whatever you want. So we need to have that collaborative discussion. Um, and sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to deal for a period of time with not getting the perfect scenario that you want. And the coach goes, well, actually, I want this, this, and this. And you go, okay, where can I sprinkle in bits of what I want? Yeah, that might even be things like, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this in the warm up because I have control of that right now. And then eventually, as you build that trust, you get a little bit more and a little bit more, and you end up with the program that you really wanted two years ago. But that's okay <laughs> because it's been a process, and you've now got a great relationship with that coach. That if you go, I think we want to do this, the coach goes, okay, let's do it. 
Yeah. Rather than, oh, not sure about that. Yeah. I think a lot you of times. Which is invaluable. invaluable. Yeah. A, a lot of times as S&C coaches, we almost look at it as, oh, well, I'm not doing everything I want. And therefore this is not ideal as, whereas, as you say, okay, doing a little bit of what I want, but this coach believes in that little bit enough where that little bit over time can grow rather than, oh, I'm not getting three hours a week with them. This is rubbish. Um, moving, well, one of the points you mentioned there yeah. was definitely a mistake I made as a less inex- or more inexperienced S&C coach in the fact of, oh, I'll just get my athletes really, really strong and therefore they'll be the best. How do you, obviously, I know a lot of what you do is about improving the movement qualities of the swimmers. And yes, strength and power may play a part. Do you do anything that helps your swimmers improve their feel of the water? And what might this look like? (laughs) This is a a really tough question um, because the pure S&C coach inside me goes, no, don't be stupid. I'm not going to get involved (laughs) in what they do in the water because I'm not a swim coach, right? Um, but that is the purest in me. And I think what I'm about to say, you will have a lot of purest S&C coaches out there who will rant and rave about what I'm about to say and go, well, this is totally wrong. You know, you're not doing S&C anymore. You're, you know, bowing to the needs of the coach. We actually do integrated sessions um, where, and, and it's a relatively new thing that we do, um, where we actually go down on poolside with the swimmers and with the coaches for half an hour a week with each squad uh, or with two two of the top squads at the moment. Uh, we hopefully we'll bring it down into the rest of the club soon. And we spend time each term uh, developing certain skills. So we started with some uh, literally just body positioning in Streamline and just trying to get kids in a better position in Streamline. Firstly, just floating in the water um, and then integrating it into a push-off, integrating it into a stroke and starting to integrating it then into a dive. And so in terms of in-water qualities, we're trying to take a little bit more active role in helping coaches develop that physical capacity now or skill, if you like, um, because that's exactly what it is. It is a skill. And I'm not ever going to pretend that I am a swim coach and I can do a better job of this than a swim coach. But what I'm trying to do is create an environment where the swim coach can now start to see more of the input that we can have as S&C coaches uh, and the wider aspects of what we can do um, and also give them opportunities per week that are designated to help them develop certain qualities which are maybe not able to be developed with a massive group. And to split it down and go, okay, well, how about if we do these things? And we'll do a few things on land with you. So we do it in some rotations. They do something on land with us and then transfer that bit of the skill into the water, which is then coached by a swimming coach. And what I generally like to have is a swimming coach and an S&C coaching the on-land stuff. And then a swimming coach and an S&C seeing it in the pool. So we're getting that relationship building, but we're also from an athlete perspective, they're going, well, this is great. This is really cool. S&C are doing all of this stuff. And what's really nice is it kind of ties in nicely at the moment with some of the cool, funky stuff they see coming out of the States and, and with the proteins in the States. And they go, oh, cool. They're doing this on, on poolside stuff. And so are we, that's wicked, right? 
actually what I'm just doing is going, well, you guys aren't skilled enough in the water, so let me help. What can I do? Yeah. Um, and it comes from that it comes from me having meetings on a regular basis with the coaching team going, what do you think integrated should do? Is it necessary to develop this? Uh, do you think we've reached a point where we can't really do anything anymore on this? And, you know, there was a point the other week where we were talking about streamlining and us having a conversation on poolside going, actually, I think this is so much better than we were four weeks ago in terms of how they look in streamline. I think the problems you guys are now describing as coaches are about balance and feel for the water, which is going to be almost impossible to develop on land yeah. because they are in a weightless environment. And, you know, swim, I know. And, I, and when you get in the water, you start to go, actually, there are some things here which I just need to do this in the water. And I just need to do, you know, practice that. I can't go on land and build more strength or build more stability or do some stuff on land. And that's not going to change this. This is about my skill as a swimmer, very specific primary transfer skill into the water. Um, and so there is a, an extent to which we can help. And I'm not going to suggest that I can take a really bad swimmer and make them great. I'm saying I might be able to help in some aspects of that development. And if we can create a program that is a little more integrated like that, then that's brilliant. Um, but still, my main concerns are, do they have that big toolbox? And if I'm looking at stuff in the water, I'm mainly looking at, can I make a difference off the blocks and off the wall? Yeah. Generally, what you're going to find is that if you make a difference off the blocks and off the wall, you're going to have some difference in free swimming as well that's going to come as a, as a nice side effect of those two. Um, but those are the two big areas where I think we make a massive difference, but there's no reason why we shouldn't integrate a little more into the sports that we do. And swimming is much more difficult. If you try and do that in something like tennis, which I know Bromley Tennis Center already do, and they do a fantastic job at it. Um, you know, dare I say it, it's a little easier to do with tennis yeah. because you look at those moves and go, Oh, I can do that online. That is exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't because they are horizontal and they are in the water and I can't do exactly the same thing. I go, how close can I get to it that's still being effective? And most importantly, it's then knowing from personal perspective and from professional perspective, when to back off and go, okay, I'm done now. Yeah. And having that communication with the coaches to make sure that we're all on the same page with that. So in regards to the, obviously the uniqueness of the pool environment, Obviously, it is a weightless environment. So if I'm a technical coach coming at you and saying, right, you're doing all this strength work uh, and you're getting them really, really strong, but the environment they compete in is, is weightless, why is this strength work important? Yeah, so I think this is where we can look at, um, you know, this is where I take it to off the blocks and off the wall. And I go, okay, well, what forces do we want them to be putting into the blocks to be able to get this distance in their dive? Or, you know, and we can look then at some of the stuff that is coming out of British swimming, some of the stuff that is coming out of the research and go, okay, let's have a look at these forces. Um, let's have a look at what these guys need in terms of physical capacity at the elite level. Um, and I know Scott Pollock, when he was at British Swimming, was doing some really great stuff with his elite end swimmers going, well, actually, they need to be squatting one the half times body weight because this is transferring so well into the pool in terms of correlational data, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so 
it is going, yes, we need to get off the blocks and we need to get off the wall fast. And if we bring the wall down, especially to, well, what do we need to do at the wall? What do we need to do on a flip turn? And the coaches will go, well, we need to get off the wall fast, as fast as possible. And I go, okay, so you need to, you know, you need to almost slow down and stop that momentum and then generate force fast off the wall. Well, to me, that's looking at SSC and top end RSI values and going, okay, well, what do they need to be? Unfortunately, in the data, in terms of terms, there really isn't a lot out there giving you specific values. But it's going, well, actually, if I look at these general qualities, that's what I need to be developing. And that's why we need this strength work in there because you try and do this with a very weak kid and I sometimes bring that kid out and I go, cool, how do they turn in the water? Oh, well, they kind of plow into the wall, they concertina in and then they kind of push out and they don't get very far. All right, well, there's a really springy kid over here that's actually been working as pretty strong. What does he do off the wall? Oh, well, he kind of taps and then drives off. Oh, okay, great. Well, there's a big difference between those kids. One is not very strong at all and doesn't have good movement quality and the other one really does. And so it's about almost bringing that to the coach's attention sometimes and directing it specifically to a, a swimming situation and going, I'm not going to go, oh, once we hit these qualities, we're done. Because that would be the nice holy grail. I'd love to be able to do that. And I can use general values for that of kind of one and a half, two times body weight. That would be lovely for us to get to. Yeah. And I can use to some extent British swimming stuff going, okay, we need to be at one and a half times body weight when we are, you know, going for those elite level programs. But in terms of the general importance of it, I'm looking at real life situations in the pool. I'm looking at what I can get from the research and I'm looking at building that pyramid and going, okay, we need the capacities to be able to push off these surfaces and to develop this force. And then when we're in the water, we need to be looking at, okay, we're not dealing with gravity, but we are dealing with a hell of a lot of a drag. And we need to be able to pull ourselves through the water and continue kicking effectively. Kicking is a nice one where coaches will generally go, oh yeah, we need to be strong in our kick. Great. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> and it's bringing into that. Okay. So what, what, what do we need to do? What does that mean? Where do we go with that? Okay. What type of strength is that? How do we underpin those qualities? How do we underpin that power? And, and really letting the coach kind of lead that conversation with me guiding it in the, in the direction of where I think we need to go with it. And then they end up then coming out with, oh yeah, we need to be really strong in our kick. So we need to have a, a base of uh, kind of strength development here, which then transfers into power. And I go, well, here's our program. Here's how this works. And they go, okay, yeah, got that. So that's nice when you get that. But again, it's realizing that that's lovely. That doesn't come in one conversation. Often, you're very lucky if it is. Um, but often, it's also bringing the coaches back to that sometimes. Because you will go off on a tangent. and Sorry, not on a tangent, but you will end up going off that and eventually them coming back to you and you going, I feel like we're having the same conversation again. <laughs> and it's just having those points where we can remind them and go, you know, when we had this conversation before, well, the same kind of thing applies here, but here's how it applies. And I'm going, okay, yeah, yeah, got it. Um, like I say, the, the philosophy around strength conditioning is massively changing in swimming. You're seeing a lot more strength conditioning roles opening up. You're seeing a lot more places that have 
invested in strength conditioning programs at the elite level, but also filtering down through the club level. Um, and what I find is that's really nice is I invite my S&C coaches, to, uh, sorry, I invite my swimming coaches to come along to um, British Swimming S&C conferences. I invite them to come along to club visits with me and go, I'm going to go visit the S&C that's working here. Why don't you come with me? Blah, blah, blah. And we go to different swimming clubs so they see how it works. Um, I think one of the great things that actually really helped us with warm-up is we went to a level one week at Plymouth uh, one year, come not what year it was, and um, I was trying to have the conversation with the coach at the time about warm-ups and the importance of those warm-ups. And, and we went to the door of the Plymouth Leander warm-up centre, who are a, a top-level club, and they had their med balls out. They had, you know, their ropes out. They had their, their mats out and their, their bands. And you saw their swimmers doing this fantastic warm-up. And it was one of those light bulb moments in the coach's mind, which just went, okay, right, I see. They're slamming their med balls before they get in the pool. Why are we doing that? Why do we see that? Blah, blah, blah. And that initiated a really great conversation. So... Sometimes it is about explaining, but often it's about seeing. As much as we, we like to think that we can explain our way through everything, sometimes it's about going, come with me. Why don't, why don't we go and have a look at how this works? Yeah. Um, and sometimes when you have those situations, it's surrounding yourself. Back to what we were talking about at the start, it's surrounding yourself with a good network of people to be able to go, having a little bit of trouble with this coach. How did you deal with this? Or can we come and see you? I think that would really help in the place that we are right now. It would be great to come and see some of your strength work um, and to get a different voice uh, sometimes. So, yeah, I think I'd, I explain it via the pyramid. Um, I try and ex explain it via particular examples of particular swimmers, look at particular situations in the pool where it's needed, try and guide them to coming to that decision by themselves and bringing them to other places and conferences and other coaches. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag depending on who you're dealing with um, and depending on the level where you're starting at. Yeah, yeah. In, in my brief experience with uh, swim coaches or swimmers themselves, is as you said, the strength work might take a little bit more convincing as to why it's important. But I'm sure a lot of swim, what a lot of swim coaches typically wouldn't disagree that the endurance or the cardiovascular side is important um so my two questions are do you ever mm -hmm. do any energy assistance work with the swimmers or is that done predominantly by the coaches and the second part of that question is when you think that a swimmer is limited in their performance how do you distinguish between the limiting factor being for example the cardiovascular system the musculoskeletal system or as you said, the mobility and stability requirements, which you've said are so important? The first one is easy. The second one is not so easy. The first one is no, um, quite simply, uh, because the, their sport is developing energy systems. Yeah. That, that is what it is. That's what it does. Uh, we don't necessarily have to worry about uh, specific conditioning because most of the year they are doing that conditioning in the pool. Yeah. Um, the only times where I do start to actually add some conditioning is uh, at the start of the year after a big break, like a summer break, just to literally get them back in the feel of being in the gym and, and being building that intensity again. Yeah. 
with injured swimmers that aren't able to swim or that aren't able to do certain things in the pool. Um, so for example, we've had a swimmer who broke her wrist recently uh, and unfortunately couldn't get waterproof cast on so she couldn't swim. Uh, and so we had to do a block of conditioning work with her um, because that was what she needed at the time. Um, so those are kind of the only times where I do do specific conditioning work. Or I guess the other time is when the swim program, and this is about, again, communication with technical coaches, is when the swim program starts to be based around a very technical block for a period of time where they aren't really getting any energy system development. And usually what the coaches will do will be clever enough to actually build energy system development around that technical work because it's important to note that energy systems, although they are general, are quite specific to sports sometimes. Um, and so me doing a load of mech conditioning in the, in the gym isn't always going to transfer as well as we would hope into the pool. Um, I remember, you know, as a badminton player going, Oh cool. I'm going to do all this kind of metabolic conditioning and I'm going to do these circuits and that'd be great. And then actually getting onto court and being like, Oh my God, I'm dying because <laughs> it was very specific in terms of what I needed. Yeah. And, and sometimes it is realizing that what they really need is their sport. Yeah. Um, and as much as we want to cover all bases, sometimes it's going, Oh, actually I don't need so much of that this time. There are certain periods where we do. Um, so yeah, from that perspective, it's, it's a relatively simple answer that in the majority of my program, no, I don't. Yeah. Um, because I'm trying to develop things which they can't do in the water rather than things that they can. That makes sense. Um, so, uh, just repeat the second part of the question to me. So I have it all in my head. Uh, was how do you determine whether in terms of determining limiting factors in an athlete's swimming performance, how do you go about analyzing for example whether it's mobility or stability that's a limiting factor whether it's cardiovascular which you've kind of alluded to the fact that it probably isn't or whether it's a strength endurance or musculoskeletal type issue yeah this is this is a more difficult uh more difficult one uh one that i don't think i've i've fully mastered um yet um i think it's about having the conversation with the swimming uh, with the swim coach and having that objective data to be able to back up on and going well if you have a specific issue with a kid that say they're not getting uh, a good 15 meter time then we need to be looking at okay is it the off the block is it the fly kick in the water is it the ability to hold their breath for long enough? Um, is it ability to get an efficient stroke? Um, and is that down to a movement pattern or is that down to a skill-based thing? Um, as in, do they not have the tools or are they just not using the right ones? Um, and sometimes we use video to do that. Uh, it's a conversation that we have with the athlete as well that goes, well, what feels wrong to you? And sometimes the athlete will just go, I feel like I'm plopping off the block. I don't feel like I'm really being able to push at all. And actually what's quite nice sometimes is we look at the block and we go, oh, okay, well, you're not pushing off, but your strength scores look pretty good. And then we look from behind and go, oh, well, hang on, your back foot's wobbling about all over the place and you don't look at all stable on the block. So that's probably why you aren't getting off. 
So right, now we need to look at some stability work. We look at it, we try it, we put them back. If it doesn't work, we then need to look at something else. Um, so it's a bit of trial and error sometimes, but it is about analyzing that and trying to get in there as much as we can with the swim coach, with the athlete, um, and looking at the different factors that are going to make up that particular thing. Sometimes what you find with swimmers that are going through a period of change um, and kind of change in technique or uh, change in level of the level that they're, they're working at. So the classic one is, is them being able to swim 50 meters uh, or swim 25 uh, at younger ages uh, without taking a breath. Um, and what you sometimes find is that as soon as they come up and take a breath, they almost die. Um, and the swim coach goes, oh, well, hang on, they're, they're not strong enough, or, or they can't do this. And you go, oh, well, hang on, what, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with someone actually not being able to breathe, okay? Do they have the capacity to hold their breath for that long? Yes, they do. Okay, do they have the capacity to deal with lactate without breathing? That's where we're falling down. So we might actually be able to do it. And actually, I think I, I was having this conversation with another another coach, and I can't remember who it was about developing a swimmer who was having this exact problem. And they actually went, well, we put them in certain uh, uh, isometric positions in the gym where they had to generate enormous amounts of lactate, and we just didn't let them breathe. And then we let them take one breath after a certain period of time, which would be when they come up in the water. And then we kept going with the exercise to try and uh, kind of almost uh, simulate that what was going to happen physiologically in the water. Um, and that started to make a real difference. So a lot of the time it is very much a trial and error thing. Um, cardiovascular thing is generally easy. They can't keep up with the set. Yeah. Uh, and it's generally an endurance thing, which is where you go, okay. And that's where we sometimes will then either intervene by doing some cardio training in, in, in gym or actually where we start to go, well, how often are they attending? Are they attending for the big endurance sets? Or are they conveniently missing those ones and then <laughs> ending up in the skill sets? Oh, okay, now we're seeing a bit of a pattern here. So, you know, you've got, you've got to be clever with it. You can't just go, all right, well, it's a perfect world. These are kids. It is not a perfect world. The kids will be clever. They will try and get out of things. They are not high-level athletes. They're not going to be there every day that you ask them to be there sometimes. And so sometimes you will have kids that are skipping out on the fitness sessions because they go, well, I don't want to do the fitness session because it's hard because I don't like it. So I'm going to come for the skill session. And then you might get a coach coming back to you going, they're not fit enough. What are you doing? <laughs> and I'm going, well, hang on. Let's bring out the, you know, let's bring out the attendance. Let's actually have a look at what's going on and adding some responsibility on the athlete sometimes. Well, we as SDC coaches get blamed for everything. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a hang up of the job and it's, and it's yeah. frustrating. Um, but it's about having some objective data and having a critical eye and having a good understanding of the, um, of the specific qualities that make up that sport, how they link with each other and how we can analyze them with a swim coach, with an athlete, and go, well, what do we think is breaking down? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's much more difficult than it is to, to talk about. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant answer. Last couple of questions in closing is, me and you have talked offline uh, about this topic uh, a fair bit, but in your opinion, what is the importance of 
if there is any importance of a coach keeping themselves in shape if they are, for example, involved in the role of physical preparation for their athletes? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think this one is a very hotly debated topic and, and my opinions on it have changed over the years. Um, the side of this which I don't like is when uh, we as professionals are hired based on how we look. Um, yeah, 100%. So I'm never going to get a job in rugby looking the way I do. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> me neither, mate. Me neither. Enough. I won't get respect from players. I won't get respect from coaches. No, no matter what I do, you yeah. know? Uh, so there's certain jobs where I go, well, I've kind of just got to come to terms with that. I yeah. think certain professions are getting better in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Um and there is that side to, well, the athlete needs to be able to buy into it. And sometimes that's easier when the athlete buys into you because you look like you can do it. Yeah. Um, however, that can flip the other way around. 100%. I've had feedback from athletes with some assistants that I've been working with that look jacked and that look like they've got, you know, the bodybuilder physique. And the kids turn around to me and go, I don't think he's any good. And I go, why not? They go, well, because he looks like a bodybuilder. So <laughs> what does he know? And it's kind of going, okay. Yeah. So there's a, there's, you've got to take it in terms of what your athletes are seeing. When you're dealing with kids, they're going to be brutally honest. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily going to see you and your physique the same way that an adult might. So you've got to be able to, to take those hits in some ways and go, oh, yeah, okay. The, the other big part of this is no matter what you look like, I think if you're coaching, especially if you're coaching kids, and this is an area that I'm really pushing myself to develop in, you've got to be able to demo really well. Yeah. Um, I've seen this in practice in tennis, and it really, really hits home point. Um, especially when you are dealing with athletes that are mainly going to learn from observing you, from observation, from visual learning. Um, if I want a kid to do, and, um, kind of squatting is a very, very easy scenario to work this in. I will have some assistants sometimes demonstrate a squat pattern and you'll watch the coach demonstrate and then you'll watch the kid do it and you'll watch the coach get frustrated that the kid is doing it wrong and they've actually done exactly what the coach just did. (laughs) I've been guilty of it and I've gone, that's what I just did. But I still get frustrated and go, why are you doing it this way? Because they don't know. <laughs> no. The difficult thing is going, okay, I can't do that. I either need to get better at doing that, or if it's something I can't get better at doing that for whatever reason, for uh, say a physiological reason why I can't do that, you've got to find a model that can um, Whether that be literally getting out a video and going, this is what it should look like, yeah but be prepared if you're going to do that you need to answer the question of why can't you do it (laughs) yeah because that will be what comes up um and and sometimes you know what you get the biggest respect from going because i'm really working hard at it do you want to do it together i have done that with an athlete in the past uh, several athletes actually and it works incredibly well yeah and i go i'm gonna give this demo but i'm not the best at it but these are the things that I want to see you do. 
here's a really good video of one. I'll show you what mine looks like. And then I want to see if you can do it. Yeah. Um, and they go, oh, you should have done this, this, and this. And I go, fantastic. Thank you. Great. That's what I want you to be able to see is when it's going wrong. I also want to be able to see you do it. Yeah. So let's see if we can get you doing it. And then maybe I'll jump in and I'll try and do some with you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I really do think you, we do need to work our demos and be very good at them. I think, you know, coming from a background in swimming where I really don't do loads of speed and agility stuff, um, going into tennis and suddenly with quite specific movements that we want to be teaching, I need to learn how to do those. Yeah. And I'm still working on how to do those. Some of them I'm getting down, but some of them just, oh, that still looks bad. Yeah. And actually, if I watch some really great coaches in tennis, they are the coaches that can demo incredibly well, yeah. that can get out on court, that can get in the weight room. And if an athlete's doing, you know, whatever thing, they go, this is how I want it to look. And, and it's spot on. Yeah. And I think that is more important for me than how we look. If yes. that makes sense. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes, I think we should look professional, but I think we should be able to do what we say. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd argue that it's almost not so much the training per se, but as we've spoken about many a time in our own athletes, it's about the qualities that being consistent with those behaviors are going to get you to. Because not everyone, you know, not everyone's going to be an elite level coach, not everyone's going to be an elite level athlete, but being able to be organized enough, consistent enough to do, as you said, what you a preaching is important is for me more important than whether you, I don't know, do this sport, that sport, that kind of training, whatever. My last question before wrapping up is you've done a brilliant job in almost bringing together a multidisciplinary team and outsourcing stuff like uh, physios and other types of professionals. What advice would you give to people who, for example, are either working by themselves or for themselves in terms of building this network of professionals with skill sets that perhaps as an SNC coach, you might not have. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I'm a big believer that if you are a, uh, an SNC coach uh, or in a profession where you are going to need to refer out, um, you need to have some good referrals in your contact book. Uh, you know, you need to have a good physio, you need to have a good osteopath, you need to have a good, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think for me, it's come about from trying to, um, I've been to people in the past, so I generally don't recommend a physio unless I've seen them myself for something. Um, the physios, Phoenix osteopathy that we, uh, they're going to shoot me for this, uh, osteopaths because I use the word interchangeably and I get told off for it and I know so the osteopaths that we work with um, called Phoenix Osteopathy who are brilliant based on ones with common um, I actually saw them I didn't actually see them first you know contrary to what I just said but they dealt with several of my athletes yeah. um, who went there via uh, this person who they found the place and I ended up having a conversation with the physio about said athlete and we ended up sitting down having a longer conversation, having a coffee and it ended up that we ended up thinking about developing this partnership and they came in to develop a CPD. I think the biggest thing for me is try and get treated by them, but also really see what they are like in terms of communicating in terms of their knowledge. I will have athletes still, even though we have a partnership, go to different physios 
and I will get physios coming back to me or come back to me through a parent going, oh, I don't have time. Oh, I hello. don't have time to speak to your S&C coach or you need to do this. The S&C coach is doing this wrong. And it's that lack of communication which I think really switches me off to those people. 100%. It's the people that can turn around and go, right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why I want to do this. Let's you know, have a proper conversation about it and how does this work? I now have you know, weekly phone calls with our osteopaths that are working with our athletes and go, here's our program right now. Can you send me over what you're doing? Why are we doing this? What do we think about this? And, and it is just that professional communication that allows us to have a network of people, which I think is so important when you're trying to build an athlete in a non-multidisciplinary uh, setting and trying to almost develop it yourself yeah. um, through your personal network. But get out there, speak to lots of videos, go to different practices. Um, uh, I struggle on the side of psychologists and nutritionists. Okay. And the way I've started getting with that is start to develop a CPD program for the club. Yeah. And start to go, oh, I'd really like to have a CPD program around nutrition or around sports psychology. Um, I talk to other coaches about their connections and I start to go, oh, I'm looking for someone that's doing nutrition. I'm using my coaches network again that we talked about at the start going, what do you think about this person? Or, or have you talked to this person? And I end up having a conversation with them going, oh, can you come in? Or, you know, I'm having, you know, oh, maybe can I come and see you? And so I'm actively trying to seek those out because I think it's really important to give those options to my athletes. What I really hate, what I really hated about the early part of my career was athletes that used to come to me going, oh, I've got this. And I used to go, cool, you need to go see the physio. You need to see the osteopath. Uh, okay, who do I go and see? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then you blame when the osteopath or the physio isn't doing the job you want to do or you're not getting the right communication. It's like, well, actually, you know, I've got to take responsibility for that. Yeah. They asked me and I didn't have an answer, so I need to have one next time. Um, and so I think, yeah, you've got to actively seek that out. But it's very important. If we're dealing with something where we cannot do everything because that is not in our scope of practice, then we need to find people that can. Yeah. And there's probably, um, I was going to say, there's, sure. there's almost, in my mind, a certain placebo effect of go and see this guy or girl. They're great at what they do. I've been to see them myself. They fixed me for X, Y, Z issue I had. And like you said, obviously that communication is only going to be helpful versus, oh, well, get on Google and find somebody and we'll go from there, you know, and leaving the athlete in the wilderness, so to speak. My Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, final two questions is one person for me to follow on social media or speak to and why? And the, and yeah, we'll answer that and then we'll move on to the last one. Um, I'll follow everyone and everyone and <laughs> that that's going to seem like a really blase answer to this question. I don't have one person that you should go and speak to. I don't have okay. one person that, you know, is going to change your, your career. I don't, I don't have those people. I, I follow lots and lots of different people that give me different things at different times in different ways. There is no perfect coach. You are not going to be a perfect coach. There is not someone out there who is doing the best job. Um, there are lots of people out there that are doing their jobs in the context that they are in, at the stage of their careers that they are at, that 
may or may not put out some good content. Um, I, you know, if I want to talk about someone specific that I'm following recently, I started following Howard Green on um, social media, and and his stuff has been great around tennis specific um, agility work, uh, yeah. and some of the content that he puts out on his site. Um, is, is really, really great. And so that's one person that I follow recently, but yeah, I'll I follow a myriad of people because they give me different stuff. So, you know, um, I, I know it's not the answer you probably want for a podcast, but it, I don't have <laughs> a list of one person that just goes, yeah, this is the guy that's going to give you everything. Um, and, uh, I, and I have to say it probably comes from the fact that I use social media like a scrolling tool. Uh, and I don't actually put out a lot of content myself. Um, because I, I, I just don't, you know, that's not how I go about things. But, um, yeah, so follow everyone. Yep. And it's the easiest thing in the world to make your social media and just click on a button and go, boom, followed. Yep. If they're not putting out good stuff or it's not helping you at that point in time, just unfollow. It's fine. But I think, you know, get out there, speak to people, go, right, let's, let's follow this person. Let's follow that person. Okay. Let, let's see how that works for me right now. But the most important thing is don't just follow them on social media. Yep. Get in touch, make a connection, make, build that network. When you do see them at a conference, go up to them and be like, I really like your work. I'm following your work. This is great. This is where I think, and I know I, we had this conversation last time we went to the UKCA and it was like, Oh, I know that person. I'm not quite sure I want to go up to <laughs> right now. My mindset is very much different to that. I'm just going to walk up to you and go, I really like the stuff you're putting out online. Even if that is the two minute conversation we have Mm -hmm. and I go, Oh, be great to chat to you a little bit later on. That's cool. I've, I've made myself known to that person. And then I follow it up with a little email afterwards. Okay. It was great to bump into you. I hope bump into each other in the future. Yeah. And, and, and that's all, that's what it's all about really is developing that network um, and getting, trying to see as much as you can. Yeah. I think with what you said is your, how your role came about in terms of the first year of your career. I'm sure a lot of that was to do with being in the right place at the right time, regardless of whether you were perfectly qualified or, you know, whatever phrase you want to use. So to finish up in terms of social media, where can, I know you said you don't put up that much stuff um, at the moment, but where can people get in touch with you or see what you're doing, whether it's social media or email? Yeah, so um, probably, ugh, do you know what, uh, Facebook or Twitter, uh, I don't put out loads on either of them, but it's a good place to probably get in touch. Um, Twitter is, and, and this is how little I use it, you see, I have to actually go and search for what my handle is. <laughs> uh, Twitter is at JL underscore performance. And Facebook is uh, Jack Lynch perform. Perfect. And I will chuck both of those in the show notes once this podcast is published. Um, Perfect. Thank you very much uh, for your time, Jack. Really appreciate uh, you spending two and a bit hours speaking to me. And I will, uh, well, I'm sure I will catch you very soon when I either take a trip to Bromley or hopefully come and see you doing your stuff at Leander. Absolutely, mate. It's been great to chat. Thanks very much. Take it easy, mate. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much. Pleasure's all mine, mate. 
That was part two with Jack Lynch and episode six of the Platform to Perform podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter if you search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Likewise, you can find me on Facebook if you also search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. And you can look me up on Instagram at Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you again in the next episode.